Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on WLPN. This week, Lumpen Radio spoke with a Grammy-winning artist, talked with two tech pioneers in Chicago, and heard from one of the city's hottest new bands. All this plus the Trump Diaries and much more, only on the Lumpen Week in Review for March 23, 2018. Mario Smith spoke with the Grammy-winning jazz vocalist Kurt Elling about his return to Chicago. Elling talked about working with the greats, his own seminal albums, and the Brill Building catalog. News from the service entrance with Mario Smith airs every Thursday at 2 p.m. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my honor to introduce my friend Kurt Elling to the show. What's up, Kurt? Right on, Mario. Man, I'm happy to hear your voice. It's been a while. It's been much too long. I think the last time I saw you performing, God, oh, it was at the Green Mill. You were recording your live album. Oh, man, that's a while. It's been a minute. That's a while. It's been a minute. Um, it, needless to say, I'm, all the personal stuff aside, you have been a busy dude, and you've got a brand new project that's out, and I want to talk a lot about that. But I just want to go back a little bit so folks who aren't familiar with you can kind of get an idea of, of why I am so excited that you're on the show. You, um, our connection is Von Freeman. Right on. And Vonsky introduced me to you, and he pulled, I don't know if I ever told you this, he kind of pulled me to the side over at the uh, at the note and was like, Okay. He, he goes, let me tell you something, Mario Skis. That dude right there, you see that guy right there with the ponytail, that dude? It's like, he is the future. And that was all he said. And he walked back to his corner at the bar uh-huh. and sat there and did his thing. And ever since then, it's been a, a pleasure to be able to hear you do your thing, man. Um, Thank you. Yeah, no doubt. So so the, the we, <laughs> we both uh, are the same age now, still. <laughs> and, right. and from the time we met in 97 to now, a lot in this world has changed. Um, your trajectory on this new album is really more, you're, you're, you're making more of a stand than I think you've, not that you haven't made a stand before, and not that you haven't been active before, but this is a little bit more in your face, if you know what I mean. The, well, I think the circumstances of our time are a little bit more in our face. Uh, you know, there's always been challenges, and a lot of, you know, a lot of racial tension has gone uh, either encouraged or ignored. Um, you know, the problems, the chronic problems that are a part of the American psyche from our earliest days have gone unaddressed in the largest ways. And now, probably like you and a lot of your listeners, I feel that at this moment, a lot of the more egregious and upsetting things that are a part of the American character are pronouncing themselves in particularly uh, awful and substantial ways. Uh, And uh, I didn't feel, you know, I've turned 50 this year, and it's one thing to make a bunch of love records and talk about uh, cosmic things and talk about uh, the joys and sorrows of an individual life. But right now, you know, we're really in a jam. And I'm not really a protest singer in a way that I admire in terms of the people like an Oscar Brown Jr. Um, but, uh, you know, I want to do my part. And for me, that means asking more questions. And it means trying to hold up a little bit of a mirror 
uh, and, and saying, hey, is this, is this really where we are? Is this really wh- who we want to be? Is this how we want to represent? Um, and, of course, it's not, just, it's not only a political record. I'm not even sure it is a... a, a I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm still asking all the other questions, too. Where to find love? Um, what happens when you get old and you lose your powers? And you have to continue going on. And what do the people around you think? And can you still ha- hold it together? Um, what do you do when you lose it all? Do you continue to choose to live, or do you cash it in? So there's a whole lot on the record, um, and I think it's also very listenable. I'm happy with the musicians on the record. Very happy with uh, Branford Marcellus taking a co-producing role and also playing soprano and tenor saxophones. Uh, Chicago's own Marquise Hill playing trumpet and flugelhorn on several cuts. And then, you know, Jeff Tane Watts playing drums and the rest of my band, all a bunch of Chicago cats. So uh, I feel really proud of it. And I, 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 I hope it's a step forward for me. And I hope it is both challenging and comforting for the people who check it out. The couple of songs that I've had the pleasure of hearing, they have the 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 foundation it sounds like a movie soundtrack almost um yeah it, it's got the it's got the body of, of something great that's happening when you were in the process of writing this did you give yourself the room to kind of forget about the past albums you've made and just really and, and I, I i know you well enough to know some of your process but on this one in particular did you give yourself that opportunity to kind of just stretch out a little bit and say okay I'm putting this out here because it needs to be said, and I've got these magnificent cats, like you said, Tane and and Marquise, who's unbelievable, and and Branford. Um, did did knowing you would have that kind of personnel affect how you wrote it, and and did you think about that kind of like this is more of a statement? You know what I mean? Well, you know, I didn't know how much of a statement that it was going to be. Uh, I just wanted to pull the best cats together and because I was able to spend so much time with Brantford in the past couple of years, just because we were done with that tour, I was so hungry to learn more from him and to spend more time with him, and this was an obvious way to do it. So the alt, you know, some of the choices that, uh, really, that you can hear on the record really belong to Brantford, and it's me trusting him to help me uh, and my, my cohorts you know, create something that's as new for all of us as possible. We're with Kurt Elling, multiple Grammy winner, uh, part-time Chicagoan. Are you back in the city? Sure, I'm back in the city. Right Man, on. I'm back in the city all the time. I'm going to be back uh, coming up, not only for the promontory, but for a bunch of dates around there, just for family things. Nice. Uh, and, I, you know, I'm always making the scene back in Hyde Park. My, my wife's uh, folks still live back there, and um, you know, a lot of friends like yourself to catch up with. Yeah, indeed. It's going to be good to see your face. It has been a while. Um, I was doing my due diligence and doing my research uh, on uh, on the things you've been up to, and you and Branford Marsalis have a very unique <laughs> unique relationship. Um, I didn't know about the tweets until today where you guys were going, <laughs> going back and forth at each other. And I was like, oh, my God, I, I, I thought they just made an album together like a couple of years ago. But, of course, it was all in good fun. What is your relationship with Branford like? Uh, man, I'm, I'm, what can I say? I, I feel like he's been incredibly generous to me 
from from Jump Street and uh, just embracing. And uh, I'm I'm so proud of the time that I had on the road with him and the times when we still hook up and get to make music together. You know, he's a mentor. Uh, he's a friend. Um, he's an, he's a great traveling partner. Um, you know, I like to get on the phone with him once a week, even though we're not on the road anymore, and just check in and get some laughs because he's incredibly funny. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, maintain, maintain our friendship. Uh, and that's something that I look forward to. I know we're both talking about the fullness of time coming around and making some more music and some more recordings and getting back on the road together after I do this for a while and after he does uh, touring with his own uh, trio again for a while and whatever other projects are in front of us. Um, that was funny, those, those, that little tweet storm. It was funny because we were often standing right next to each other while we were doing it. <laughs> so it was, it, we were just, you know, we were mocking the current, you know, tweet storm situation that we find ourselves in on the national scale right. and using a lot of that language to, you know, man, it's just the dozens. We were just having fun <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I still laugh about it. They are very good, solid uh tweets you 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 know you've been in chicago long enough to know how to handle yourself so i was like oh my god these two are, are this real no oh, this isn't real um his brother once famously told me that he taught branford how to dress so all the marsalises have humor in them every one of them um i want to go back to 97 if if we can and i want to talk about the messenger a little bit um okay i look at that album still as uh, as, as an introduction for me to you um i had heard the other stuff previous to that but that album really sold me on this dude is solid he's really dope um mm. and and on that album you really you reached um people and i, I you know i do poetry from time to time and it, it's when people come up to you and say man I, I really felt what you were saying that's a that's an amazing kind of feeling but people were like really they went in on the messenger do you still look back at that and go man there was so much there in in, in within that moment in 1997 when we were 30 <laughs> uh, right. a long time ago now. bro uh. Uh. You know, I'm ha- I'm happy when I'm happy when uh, when people connect with with uh, with any of the moments uh, that I've been fortunate enough to record, and uh, you know, I get uh, it, it's very fulfilling to me when people remember times past uh, that uh, really touched them and that moved them, um, and I just continue to go down the road uh, and try to create more of those moments uh, for for them and for myself, and you know, it's one big exploration going out. I've got I've got Tane with me on the road for the next month and a half, and that's an education. Uh, I think it's a little education for him too, because I don't know if he's been with a singer who <laughs> who goes all the different directions that I I like to go in. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, you know uh, things are going to sound different. You're going to have different collaborative partners over the years, and that's all a part of the process. You know we're not here we're not here to just uh, reiterate ourselves. Once you find one magic potion. You want to find the next magic potion and the next and the next, and that's part of the beauty of being alive, and it's de- definitely part of the beauty of being a jazz musician. Everybody's doing you wrong now. I'm all alone on a Saturday night. Use your head. 
Radio Free spoke to Ben Holman, director of the film This is Bachibola. Holman spoke about the dangers and the beauty in the Rio favelas, their unique form of carnival, and how the Little Mermaid can be high style for Brazilian gangsters. Radio Free with John Daly airs every Tuesday at 4. You've brought a special guest. Why don't you introduce him? Okay, sure. It's my distinct pleasure to introduce uh, Mr. Ben Holman here from London, England. Uh, and yeah. Ben, you're in town uh, premiering of a pretty exciting film. Uh, well, I like to think so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it's called This is Bachibola, which is a film I made with uh, a fellow filmmaker, Nyron Jones, another guy from England. And we were both living in Brazil at the time. I lived there on and off for the last 13 years. And there is a side of Rio Carnival uh, tradition called Bachibolo, Clovis, which is a beautiful, amazing side of Rio Carnival that people really don't get to see. And this is a film about that. You know, I have to say, uh, I've been in Brazil. I was down there covering football, uh, Confederations Cup and World Cup and stuff like that. Rio was one of the most terrifying places I've ever been on the planet. And I've been in Central America when they were firing guns at me. So what is it that is so attractive about Rio that I'm, I'm missing? Oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> Leave your baggage at the door of the studio, please, Jamie. <laughs> no, I mean, a serious question. Rio, 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 is, definitely, to celebrate the Rio. Rio is definitely uh, a tough place. There's no question about it. It is a tough place. Uh, no more so than right now. And I think for me, I, I wouldn't entirely disagree with what you're saying. I think for me, Rio is the most beautiful and also the most ugly city that I've ever spent time in. But it's in a very addictive city. And it's kind of like a, a girlfriend you probably should leave but can't bring yourself to leave. You know, because when she's good, she's so good to you. And for me, living in Rio, every single week I had... One of those magical moments, one of those moments that just make you happy to be alive. But when things go dark in Rio, they go very, very dark. And of course, what Ben's referring to, for those of you who have not followed the news, a, a, a local female councilwoman was assassinated uh, last week, as allegedly by state security forces. And there have been tremendous uh, protests and, and outcry against that. Uh, and of course, you're very close to that, and you would know that. That's right. Yeah, no, it was a, an incredibly sad loss. Uh, Marielli was actually an acquaintance of mine. Uh, she was from a favela community, uh, which was the favela community which first embraced me in Rio, actually, uh, when I first moved there. And I was very much involved with uh, boxing and um, uh, working with young people there with an amazing organization there called uh, Luta Pela Pais. Uh, but yeah, she was very much a hero, uh, an incredible person and a rare voice from, you know, being... Uh, from a favela community, being poor, being a woman, being black. And she had built uh, an amazing following, was a very popular person and one of the rare good politicians in Brazil right now. So it's such, so sad and so scary that her voice, which was a very important voice, has essentially been silenced. And we should back up a little bit for people who are not familiar and, and discuss a little bit what a favela is because this is not something that we necessarily have in the United States. It's, a, it's not necessarily a, a slum. Well, it, it is a slum, but, it's, it's a but it is also a very vibrant community. I think that's some of what your film is, is celebrating when we talk about the celebration of Rio. But I don't think Americans necessarily have a good handle on just how all-encompassing the idea of the favela is in a way it's it's more than a slum it's more than a community it's almost a 
thing that exists, in my experience, outside the normal uh, government communities in Brazil. And it has been set up by those government communities in Brazil specifically to be outside them in a weird way. Well, you're right. It is something that's very much out of the the normal state control. Uh, just to clarify, they're not they weren't set up by the state. Well, but, but um, yeah, that f- essentially when they when the communities were originally formed, yeah, they were they were. I meant, meant in a weird way, mentally pushed off to the side by absolutely. the state. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Not necessarily uh, set up at like a yes. No, completely. No, you're absolutely right. And um, yeah, they do very much l- exist in an alternative. Reality outside, you know, there is very clear geographical lines, and most people who live outside of favelas never step inside favelas. People who live within favelas are equally very often scared to leave those communities because they are marginalized and victimized outside of those communities. So, no, it is a very sad situation, but um, what that does mean is within those communities, which are closed off from the mainstream, uh, that you get incredible cultural phenomena, you know, and the culture within favela community in terms of music and fashion and dress and uh, way of thinking. Um, because it exists in isolation from the mainstream, you get these amazing things like Bachibola. But I'm curious about uh, two things. First, how you found yourself coming from England uh, to Brazil. You mentioned boxing. Uh, I don't know if that was that was one of the ways you found it. But then how through that, you know, 13-year journey did you get to a place where you were able to film intimately uh, a side of Brazil that people don't see? Uh, well, my my love for all things Brazilian probably started, uh, well, started some time ago with uh, my uncle opening a, a Spanish restaurant in Camden Town in London, <laughs> as it goes. Um, where I grew up was very um, white, conservative, middle class and I just wasn't a big fan of rugby or golf. And when he opened that place, I found myself hanging out with a load of 20-something Latinos from Brazil, from Argentina, from Italy, from Spain. And a whole new world opened up for me that I personally just felt more home in. And uh, I liked the music and I liked the tequila. And yeah, I found my place there. So originally I was going to move to Barcelona, but uh, Barcelona at that time was not enough of an adventure I discovered. But that adventure I did discover in Brazil. And I was already a filmmaker uh, when I moved there and already uh, competing as an amateur boxer. And a friend of mine who had set up this NGO in in the favela in which Marielle comes from, uh, I got very involved with them from, from the moment I moved over there. And it was that community within the boxing gym and that favela community at large who really embraced me so much in my first few weeks, my well, and all the time I was in Brazil. You know, Brazilians are incredibly warm, but the welcome I got there was incredible. And those people became my family and my roots. And the reason that I didn't just go to Brazil for six months and do the gringo thing, and I built something that felt more profound and, and kept me there. And um, I think something I felt very early on it was it was always interesting talking to my Brazilian friends there, my you know middle class Brazilian friends who didn't go to those communities, who were scared of those communities. For them, it's very much like the boogeyman, you know. And I think to some extent, maybe people in the states can relate to that sometimes. In you know, in some of the cities here, there there are no go areas if you're 
you know, a, s- a certain type of person, you don't go to certain areas. So it's similar in that way, but these sort of stories or these perceptions build up about these communities. And I saw such a beautiful side and the people so nice that, that I, as a documentary filmmaker, I really felt compelled to tell some of these positive stories and show that there was another side far beyond, you know, the media headlines. Yeah, that's certainly something we can relate to here in Chicago. You know, you hear so many uh, horror stories of Chicago, and, and, and some of them are based on real facts. 600 people were killed this year. You have 3,000 people who were shot. Um, and, and that lar- in large part happens on the south and west side. You know, you're in one of those areas that people would describe as a, as a no-go area probably 10 years ago. Um, and even three years ago when we started doing these types of things on, on air, you've had multiple people shot just on the block that we're on. Um, so, so, yeah, I mean, I think we can, we can relate to that pretty well. When, you know, what is Bacebola? What, what is the, the celebration itself? So the celebration itself is something which has its traditions in, well, in ancient European and African carnival traditions to an extent. Uh, it's been around in Rio for about 80 years. It's um, these groups of guys, there's about 500 of these crews, which are like samba schools. So you have the official samba schools, um, which have the big famous parade and a judged, and I'm sure you've heard of those. Um, but Bachibola is guys from, well, generally generally guys, some women in, and children involved as well, but it's mainly, mainly guys that do it. They have these incredibly elaborate costumes, which have become more elaborate over the years, uh, which are kind of like scary clowns. Like the tradition is very much to entertain and to scare people a little bit. You know, the original European tradition was with a, a pigskin, which they, you go around hitting on the floor to make this loud sound and scare people. And this is the bachibola. This is the bola, the ball, uh, which is now plastic when they do it. And so it is this sort of carnival figure who has been around for many years uh, in European traditions. And what these guys do, they come out to, rather than samba, they come out to bali funk, which is a, a sort of a... I don't know, it's like the equivalent of Brazilian hip-hop if, for a really bad comparison, but, you know, to explain it briefly. For a really bad comparison, Major Lazer has been using a lot of the influence, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Exactly, it's that sound. And they come out in these incredible costumes, which sometimes takes like two, three months of wages to pay for. So there's an incredible lot of love goes into these costumes. And they come out with a whole blaze of fireworks and their Saida, which is like their procession, it lasts five, ten minutes. It's just five, ten minutes of absolute chaos and mayhem on the streets. But it's, uh, it's a beautiful thing. And, you know, it's a real status symbol for those involved. And it's, there's a beautiful feeling of community within those crews. But, it's, uh, but they're also in competition with each other. It's, you know, it's one crew against the next crew, you know, in terms of like who's the most beautiful costumes, who has the most fireworks. Another way to think about it, it's a bit like the 80s film Warriors. It's like <laughs> Warriors, but brought to life. It reminds me somewhat of what we think of the uh, Mardi Gras in New Orleans with the crews down there. Exactly. No, it's not dissimilar. And that sort of same strange mixture of like uh, something that's quite camp and also f- testosterone fueled as well. Mm. <laughs>
Hitting left, spoke to Cha-Cha Jimenez of the Young Lords and Billy Che Brooks of the Black Panther Party. The two discussed the legacies of 1968, the emergence of new radicals today, and what is next for the struggle. Hitting Left with the Klonsky Brothers airs every Friday at 11 a.m. We are back with uh, uh, Billy J. Brooks and Chacha Jimenez and Susan Klonsky and my brother. And we are remembering the 60s, 1968. And, you know, it it didn't end at midnight on uh, January 31st, 1969. The 60s, I mean. People have this vision that it's like Mm. this. (laughs) It's <laughs> an enclosed a magical uh, decade. Uh, dec- <laughs> decade, but it didn't start uh, in on, this, on December first or January first. I mean, and it didn't it didn't end on December thirty first. Uh, let's talk about it. I, I'm thinking of uh, I'm listening to Dr. John singing uh, uh, "Make a Better World." Uh, we had some good times, didn't we, Che? In those times, I mean, it wasn't just all. Uh, wasn't just all struggle. We had we had some good. We were pretty good at partying and. and uh, well, that was that was a concept that that uh, <laughs> kept us all focused, and that was we knew how to love. You know, we we knew how to have compassion. You know, uh, for each other, we 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 knew how to come together as a collective on on many different conscious levels. And yes, we 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 had our moments of uh, despair, but when you're struggling for a purpose, when you're struggling for the people, and if you're not having fun, <laughs> we had some joy. Yeah, you know, it's it's, it's kind of difficult. You know, you 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 every day is a struggle. You know, not knowing whether you're gonna get through that day. So you just Think of things, and sometimes it makes you party harder, yeah. knowing that. Uh, yes, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, what? What? what uh, your thoughts on the Rainbow Coalition, Shay? Well, you know, our slogan uh, was the Black Panther Party's "All Power to the People," and coalition politics was part and parcel of that. Uh, there was the Peace and Freedom Party that was out in the Oakland Bay Area that uh, we actually ran a presidential candidate and a vice presidential candidate. Do you remember that? Yes. Yeah. Yes. I don't want to mention over names, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, Eldridge something. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. Peggy so, Terry, right? No. Yeah. Peggy Terry from yeah, Uptown. Yeah. yeah. But the thing of it is, is that coalition politics was the critical piece, you know, and people think of the Rainbow Coalition. A lot of times they conceptualize it as the Black Panther Party, the Young Lords and the Young Patriots, but it was much bigger than that. Uh, Most of the critical work that we did was with the Young Lords, was, was with Rising Up Angry, was with students for a democratic society, and particularly when y'all moved down there on Addison and, uh, and Madison, and my little uh, god brother John Jr. from the projects used to come down there and roll y'all. Remember that, John, John Hickson? Yes, yes, John Hickson. <laughs> I didn't know that was. I, yeah. know, I've been trying to find him for fifty years. Right? No, he's he's deceased. <laughs> oh, he, he is. Yes, he. Oh, too he, bad. Yeah, about three, four years ago, but yeah. I had to come down there and give them a couple the, of times. These know. little dudes used to 
<laughs> they used to uh, sneak on the bus, on the Madison Street bus, and head down to Old Town, <laughs> steal some bikes, <laughs> and come back up and sell them up on the west side. Yeah. You know, no. but I mean, times like that. And he you could, know? John could, John could shake my hand and lift my watch off my wrist, and I wouldn't even know it. It's a character. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I remember it. Come little on. Eric. Yeah, yeah, you wow. remember? Him? Yeah, yeah, tough kid. Man, you know, y'all right there by Henry Horner. I know. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. You know, and if you and if you moved over on Warren, yet yeah, you were definitely the neighbors. Yeah. You no. Know? I used to sit out in front of the SDS office with those kids in the evening and uh, talk to them and try to explain to them what mm-hmm. we were doing. I, I'll tell you one funny story. Uh, when the Democratic Convention uh, demonstrations began, uh, John and Eric uh, <laughs> came down to uh, Grand Park with us just to see what was going on, you know, what all these what all these white folks were doing, <laughs> uh, protesting, the yippies and everybody in Grand Park. These were children, you understand. These were nine-year-old. These were nine-year-old, ten-year-old kids, and uh, yeah, and uh, uh, we lost we lost touch with them when the police attacked us. Uh, the the kids disappeared. I was worried to death about what happened to them. <laughs> uh, then uh, uh, a few days later, uh, Newsweek magazine came out, and uh, there on the front page of Newsweek <laughs> magazine is a picture. Of, uh, of Jean uh, Genet, Jean Genet, the, the yeah. French French writer, and uh, John Wesley Hickson and Eric sitting right next to him, <laughs> rubbing his bald head <laughs> on the cover of Newsweek. That was amazing. Yeah, we not a lot of moments. I, de- I, I, I we digress a little bit. Uh, you That's know. okay. Yeah, but uh, but uh, so were were you part of the uh, working with uh, other groups in the coalition, Jay? Yeah, pretty much. As in, in my role as the deputy minister of education for the Illinois chapter, uh, particularly with the uh, young lords, you know, we we did a lot of uh, organizing educationally with them. Not so much with uh, personally myself with the uh, young patriots, you know, but I worked closely with Mike James, you know, and Rising, Rising Up Angry. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, we work together, yes, you know. So, you know, the whole concept of coalition politics is what propelled us to another level of consciousness in terms of uh, aligning ourselves with, with uh, people who thought like The Trump Diaries. Mueller goes after the Trump Organization and raging King Cheeto. Democrats continue to rack up wins. Trump's lawyers sue Stormy Daniels for $20 million. Trump's digital consultants stole data from 50 million Facebook users. And the gloves come off at the FBI. These are the Trump Diaries. Day 420, March 15th. Robert Mueller has subpoenaed the Trump Organization, ordering them to preserve and turn over any documents related to the Trump Organization's financial dealings with Russia. The news infuriated Trump, who unleashed a bitter storm of tweets. Trump also imposed a series of sanctions on Russia today, claiming that the Russian cyber actors have targeted American power plants and other critical infrastructure. The sanctions came in the heels of other coordinated actions with France and England in the wake of the attempted assassination of former Moscow spy and his daughter using a highly toxic nerve agent that contaminated a small English town. 
Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin called the cyber attacks the most destructive and costly cyber attack in history, having caused billions of dollars in damage in the United States, Europe, and Asia. Prime Minister Theresa May also expelled 23 Russian diplomats. And Democrat Connor Lamb was confirmed as the winner of the Pennsylvania special election, dealing a sharp rebuke to Trump and the Republican Party. Lamb wanted a district that Trump had taken by 20 points in 2016, pointing to sharp dissatisfaction with the president and his policies. Most ominous for the Republican Party was that their message of tax cuts and reform had no impact on the election. Students across the country walked out to demand stricter gun regulation, including bans on assault weapons and expanded background checks. Those protests lasted for at least 17 minutes in honor of each of the 17 people killed at a Florida high school one month ago. Here in Illinois, Downers Grove gave detention to nearly 1,000 students who participated in the walkouts with administrators saying, quote, it was a lesson that civil disobedience has its consequences. Emails unveiled in a whistleblower suit show that Ben Carson and his wife personally selected the $31,000 furniture set for the Housing and Urban Development Department. Carson had previously denied having any input in the purchase and claimed he would, quote, try and cancel it. Trump is reportedly furious with Carson and may move to replace him with a panelist from Fox and Friends. And contradicting earlier claims, a lawyer for the Trump Organization filed documents to keep Stormy Daniels from talking about her alleged affair with Trump. Jill Martin, who is one of the Trump Association's top attorneys, made a demand for arbitration in a filing. Those documents marked highly confidential proceedings show a direct connection between Trump's company and the non-disclosure agreement that Daniels signed. Day 421, March 16th. Friday came and went amid reports that Trump is preparing to shake up his cabinet. Reportedly on the way out are National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster, who Trump apparently wants to replace with the hard-right John Bolton. Ben Carson, Mick Mulvaney, and Chief of Staff John Kelly are also said to be on the way out with Attorney General Jeff Sessions under pressure to leave, as usual. Trump named Larry Kudlow, a CNBC TV personality known for his erroneous economic predictions, as a replacement for Gary Cohn as his top economic advisor. He is reportedly concerning Pete Hegseth, the co-host of Fox & Friends Weekend, for Ben Carson's job. Kelly told staffers that, quote, nothing was happening and that staffers should instead focus on policy issues. Stormy Daniels' lawyer told MSNBC she has been threatened with physical harm. The lawyer did not give details but said the threats had occurred during the Trump presidency. And Trump admitted he told lies to Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Trump claimed to Trudeau that the U.S. runs a trade deficit with Canada. In fact, the USA runs a surplus. When the story was featured in NBC, Trump doubled down by tweeting, We do have a trade deficit with Canada, as we do with almost all countries, some of them massive. And Vanessa Trump has filed for amical divorce from Don Trump Jr. Day 422, March 17th. A lawyer for Trump who initially said he was speaking for his client called for the Russia investigation to be shut down. John Dowd told the Daily Beast, quote, I pray that Acting Attorney General Rosenstein will follow the brilliant and courageous example of the FBI Office of Professional Responsibility and Jeff Sessions and bring an end to the alleged Russia collusion investigation manufactured by McCabe's boss James Comey based upon a fraudulent and corrupt dossier. And Andrew McCabe, the embattled FBI agent who was personally targeted by Trump, was fired by Sessions one day before his retirement. McCabe fired back, saying, quote, the idea that I was dishonest is just wrong. This is part of an effort to discredit me as a witness. McCabe is a key witness for James Comey. He was also fired from the FBI by Trump for failing to pledge his loyalty. Trump called McCabe's firing 24 hours before he was retired and qualify for a pension, a great day for democracy in America. McCabe's biggest offense seems to be that his wife, a Democrat, ran and lost a campaign partially financed by Hillary Clinton. McCabe apparently kept voluminous memos of his interactions with Trump and Comey. He has made those available to Robert Mueller. And BuzzFeed has filed papers seeking to use Michael Cohen's libel suit against him. 
Cohen sued BuzzFeed last year over the publication of the Steele dossier. BuzzFeed is using discovery to demand that Stormy Daniels preserve all records related to her relationship with Trump, including all negotiations, agreements, and payments involving Cohen. Day 423, March 18th. Trump today attacked Robert Mueller by name in a series of tweets that shrieked, no collusion. Those tweets drew bipartisan pushback and fire with Republicans warning Trump against interfering with the election. Former FBI and CIA officers also piled on with James Clapper saying, quote, we will not let you destroy America. And Cambridge Analytica, a tech firm that has taken credit for Trump's win by using deep targeted Facebook advertising, reportedly stole 50 million Facebook users' data. The company, which also may have broken federal election laws by employing a British national, was funded by the Mercer family in an attempt to wage what the founder of Analytica called a culture war. Facebook banned the company in the wake of this report, calling the company's actions a scam and a fraud. The company is currently under investigation in the United Kingdom as well. Day 424, March 19th. Trump has hired a former U.S. District Attorney who told Fox News he believes the FBI and the Justice Department framed Trump in order to keep him from becoming president. Joseph DeGeneva says, quote, there was a brazen plot to illegally exonerate Hillary Clinton and if she didn't win the election, and to frame Donald Trump with a falsely created crime. Make no mistake about it, a group of FBI and DJ people were trying to frame Donald Trump with a falsely created crime. There's absolutely no evidence for these statements by DeGeneva. DeGeneva's wife also represents Blackwater founder Eric Prince. And that digital company tied to Trump's campaign is now had a European warrant issued against it. Cambridge Analytics, which has been accused of stealing the user data of 50 million Facebook users to aid far-right campaigns, was also caught on camera in Britain claiming it would conduct entrapment campaigns on politicians using Ukrainian women. The warrant is to search and see if their assets in the UK where the company is nominally based. A Bloomberg investigation found that Jared Kushner's family real estate company repeatedly filed false documents with the New York City Housing Department, allowing it to skirt strict regulations on rent control. Kushner companies claimed that it had zero rent-regulated tenants. Actually, hundreds of such tenants were living in their buildings. And Trump unveiled a new plan to confront the opioid crisis. That plan has no specifics or legislation. Instead, it consists of Trump's call to execute drug dealers. Day 425, March 20th. Trump called Vladimir Putin to congratulate him on his recent re-election, <clears throat> excuse me, against the advice of his aides. Trump did not mention Russian hacking of the election. A briefing book, which clearly told Trump, do not congratulate, was leaked to the press. And Karen McDougal, the former Playboy model who alleges she had an affair with Trump, is now suing to be released from an agreement preventing her from telling her story. The company American Media Incorporated, which owns the National Enquirer, paid McDougal $150,000 for her story and then killed it. It is a practice known as catch and kill. The CEO of that company, a man named David Pecker, is a friend of Trump's and he's made a habit of protecting Trump using such agreements. McDougal's lawyer says that the agreement was misleading. And a New York Supreme Court judge has ruled that Trump must face a defamation lawsuit by a former apprentice contestant. Trump had argued that presidents are shielded from civil litigation in state courts under the Constitution's Supremacy Clause. That assertion, however, had never been fully tested by the courts, making today's ruling a first-of-its-kind decision. Trump will now be liable to discovery. And Ben Carson defended the purchase of a $31,000 dining set, blaming it on his wife in a rambling appearance before the House Appropriations Committee. Carson claimed the furniture was necessary because, quote, people were stuck by nails in a chair collapse as someone sitting in it. Those details apparently came from an email from a former HUD worker who, in fact, did not make those claims. Day 426, March 21st. John Brennan, the former CIA director, told MSNBC Today that the Russians may have something on him, referring to Trump. I think he's afraid of the president of Russia, said Brennan. 
and Trump apparently required all White House employees earlier this year to sign non-disclosure agreements. Government ethics experts said the agreements raised serious legal questions. Government speech is supposed to be recorded and protected. In addition, Trump apparently just disrespects the basic right of free speech. These are the Trump Diaries. Texting Chicago spoke to Stel Velvanis and Michael Weinberg, two pioneers of the early days of Chicago tech. Velvanis and Weinberg spoke about the personalities of the early days, how the scene has grown, and what's next. Tech Scene with Melanie Adcock airs every Friday at 1 p.m. And we are back interviewing both Michael Weinberg and Stel Velvanis about some of the early times in Chicago's tech scene. Um, we ended on a, a very good note here um, in our last uh in our first part of our of our hour long segment about the city of Chicago and um, you know how you felt about that very interesting um, I'd like to start here you know now that we're back from break a little bit about more of the creative side too which I think is um, is something something we don't see as much in tech these days or so it's been said and it, it's it's been said that tech's early adopters were more creative and had a lot of overlap with art um, just just tell us some of your thoughts on that in general. Michael, you're looking at me. You're looking at me like you have vaguely something well, to been, say. Yeah. Oh. Okay. I, I, I was drawing. <laughs> I was drawing a blank. Um, you know, I, I do think that there was maybe more of a do-it-yourself, all-inclusive, mm-hmm. um, art-oriented vibe among the best of people um, in in the earlier days. I saw some of you know you see some more specialization, professionalization, um, careerist stuff. Um, sometimes emerge. But at the same time, I think, you know, I myself got sort of passionate again about tech with the um, kind of birth of, the, of, or not birth, but the maturity of mobile. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think that there, there's some ability at, the, at, at one time people become compartmentalized and some, you know, become, as I said, more um, careerist or less, you know, less, less rounded and open to the inspirational sides mm-hmm. of the media, if we're going to call it media. But but I do think that um, some of the newer technologies and paradigms are harvesting some of this futuristic mm-hmm. promise, you know, in sci-fi and drawing us all into it, involving um, some people who are really creative and having fun with it and bringing bringing a cool side in and being and bringing the ability to make money through mm-hmm. artistic and passionate endeavors, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. for creative mm-hmm. professionals, which is sometimes a rarity and sometimes gets lost in the down cycles. And we have mm-hmm. to remember that mm-hmm. in between this up cycle and the last up cycle. We had, you know, some really recessionary cycles. And that's an interesting thing, too, for technology. What I've seen now is you have sort of the dry recession for technology where the, you know, they were retaining technologists um, for the sake of efficiency, but maybe not retaining creative technologists. So Mm. there's, you know, there are a lot of you've got a broadened market for technology. It's interwoven with everything we do. And it's in the fabric of the enterprise and in the fabric of the most creative conceptual things, which are can be at you know opposites. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I think I think uh, early stages. Uh, you know, I like your point about the new kind of new new technology or new you know ways are you know where you know where there's kind of a resurgence because I do think of anytime there's any kind of new technology or new way of doing things as uh, as like a green you know a new pasture like you know the railroad got built past here now all along the way there's you know this you know, possibility now for new towns. And every time there's a new town, there's got to be the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker all over again. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, you're never, ever gonna, going to uh, 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 not have the creative spirit in, in, uh, in humans 
and in human society. And so, so the artists are part of that. And, you know, and I think the artists are the groundbreakers to a good extent, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe the rare world comes first, but they're pretty soon after there with their wares. And, you know, they're passion-driven. I would argue that the entrepreneur and the artist are a lot closer together than most people think, that mm-hmm. it's, you know, the entrepreneur uh, as opposed to, let's say, you know, the business manager deals with uncertainty rather than deals with risk. Mm-hmm. And this is the realm of the artist as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, mm-hmm. I'm discovering as much as I am creating. Uh, and when there's a new medium, you know, mobile, you got turned on mobile, like, wow, there's a whole new world. And mm-hmm. I'm going to kind of reinvent the old world on top of this new platform and in ways that couldn't have been done before as the things that facilitates. I mean, the fact that everybody has something in their hands, right? That's a gigantic, you know, change. Mm-hmm. So, so, um, so yeah, so I, I, you know, I do think um, there's going to always going to be overlap. Uh, I think money kind of distorts it a little bit is one mm-hmm. of the, the problems that we have at times where, uh, you know, people get too kind of stuck on that, you know, and the people that get involved in the creative world, if they, you know, they try to guide it towards where it makes money, that's totally normal, understandable. But if you want to, if you know, you, you want to see what's new, you want to see what's coming, go look at the artists and see what they're doing with the new media. Go mm-hmm. see what kids are doing with, you know, a million video cameras in everybody's hands and things like that. Uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, mm-hmm. that's, that's, I guess the main points about it. Yeah, that's that's a uh, wow. I am so mm. glad I asked that because I I couldn't have gotten uh, uh, two more interesting answers on it. That's for sure. Um, and uh, so I a couple other things I I wanted to mention a, a person that I know we all uh, know here in this room. Uh, David Doby. Um, he was the founder of Heaven Gallery in Wicker Park. And he's been in the tech industry for many years now, and he's gathered together so many artists who made video and digital art. And some of these people went on to have successful careers in both art and tech. Uh, I wanted to ask you guys, what kind of impact did these events and others like them have on you and your colleagues and the, the scene at the time, if you will? Well, you guys know Dave Doby works for me, and I'm sure yeah, right. yeah, I know, and, and has for many years. That's why I asked. That's why I asked because yeah. I knew we'd have uh, some good things to say about him, but also to give him some acknowledgement for um, all of the hard work he did. Um, you know, gathering community together and is still doing for yeah, Heaven Gallery. Yeah, there's no question. I mean, I mean, it, you know, it, you know, in general, like let, let's face it. You know, you know, people, you know, are just passion driven, right? You know, passion, passion driven. And, you know, and Dave and Alma, you know, certainly are like right at the top of that. But I'll tell you the kind of people that come together when it's for real. Okay, Mm -hmm. when it's when you're doing something that's for real and you're looking for artists that are emerging, that are trying Mm -hmm. new things and whatnot, uh, then is when it's truly amazing. And back in the day when I used to be a regular at Heaven, Mm -hmm. I'm not, not that nowadays, you know, with, you know, whatever full boat at my house of, of uh, you know, screaming children. Um, I, so I rarely get to go do stuff like this. You know, my older kids get to, which is cool. Um, I can tell you, I, I have met, you know, more than my fair share of not only awesome people, but mm-hmm. people that I ended up working with in some capacity. Either I hired them or did business with them or they brought me to their, you know, this really is, it's, heaven stands out as kind of like an att- attracting really, really, you know, amazing people. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm thinking back and, you know, I had, I had some other thoughts about heaven, but what I'm remembering now is particularly, um, and, and I'm not going to credit, well, is it Doug? The video, Doug. The, mm-hmm. and the video ape and, you know, and Davey Force and those guys coming through there who are huge forces of nature, seeing them come back through here. But so many wonderful people through heaven gallery over the years, unbelievable the, you know, that it's still there. <laughs> 
Radio Free Bridgeport spoke with Easy Habits about their southern fried indie rock ahead of a John Daly session recording in Studio C. This excerpt contains their ripper, WDIA. Radio Free with John Daly airs every Tuesday, drive time at 4 p.m. This is John Daly, and we are here with Easy Habits, who just recently recorded in stu- Studio C. Guys, welcome to the show. Hey. What's up? Introduce yourselves, please. Uh... My name's Jake. I play bass and sing in Easy Habits. Uh, my name's Brendan, and I play guitar and sing in Easy Habits. Guys, you guys have been playing around for, what, about a year and a half now in Bridgeport? Is that about right? Uh, you get closer yeah. to two years. Two yeah. years, yeah. yeah. Describe your sound a little bit. You guys are obviously played here at the Co-Prosperity Sphere, and listeners, through the magic of radio, are going to hear. <laughs> but I've always thought of you guys as kind of a rough-edged, southern-fried Americana kind of thing. Cool. Yeah, yes. I've always yeah. liked that. I don't know. Yeah, it changes. It changes uh, week to week or month to month, year to year. Always write new stuff, and we kind of get bored, and you know, new stuff always occurs. Tell us about this uh, the session that you had in Studio C. Uh, it happened down the street a couple of days ago, uh, and it was great. We had never been there before, uh, but we definitely passed by the place about a million times, and it's a great studio, and it went well, I think. It was laid back. It was cool. It was just like relaxed. He's got uh, so much gear, so it was just cool to like see it all set up, and it was just felt. Super comfortable. Yeah. You guys just kind of roll in and uh, plug in and play? Was that Honestly, the, yeah. Pretty like, much. I yeah. got off work and just like pulled up. I was like, <laughs> let's do it. That's amazing. It was And it was totally fine. Like usually recording can be like a lot of pressure or yeah. something. Corey's great too. Yeah. Super hands off. Super easy. Super fun. Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say by, by he, we are talking about Corey who has done a ton of the production on, uh, on all the Radio Free Bridgeport music. Yeah, he was here uh, for Marin Celeste, of course. And was he here for Feline, too? Yes. Justina? Yes, yes, yes of Yeah, we opened the show today with one of uh, Feline's songs. Center for Search and Research, I think, is the proper name of, of Studio C, but we call it Studio C. <laughs> Guys, uh, tell us a little bit about the tracks that we're going to hear, because you recorded, uh, I think it was about eight, and, and some improv stuff, that which I don't recall you guys doing. What's up with that? Uh most of the stuff I think we're going to play is newer. Like, we haven't recorded it anywhere else. Mm-hmm. I think there's three that have been recorded elsewhere that we have out maybe. but Yeah, the just rest. stuff that we've been kind of messing around with live and just a lot of uh, – it's basically like a band practice is basically what we had. Mm-hmm. And a lot of improv comes from our band practices. Not really we don't do live, but uh, at the studio we were just having a good time, so we just, uh, you know, play button was rolling and we were just playing. What was the setup? How many people? Three. Yeah. Bass, guitar, drums. Yeah, what did you, where's happened to your drummer today? Uh, he's at a clinical right now. He's in med school, so. Oh. Yeah, he's, a, he's a big boy. That's yeah. a good excuse. Yeah, good right? Excuse. <laughs> Very valid. Saving guy. the people. Cool. Okay. What do you guys want to tell our, our listeners about these songs before we get to them? What's Fair. the songs about? Uh, I don't know. Turn it up and just enjoy. And they're just about having a good time or, I don't know, they're about a bunch of different stuff. Whatever we come up with is pretty... Some love songs, some not-so-love songs, some rock and roll, some smooth jams. Smooth, easy habits. Yeah, yeah. just like we got, we got the heavy stuff, soft stuff. It's, it's we got it all. Why, <laughs> why, why the name Easy Habits? I've always, I've always thought that was very funny. So, uh, honestly, we we're just like brainstorming like different things, and we we're like, if we can pick something that doesn't put a mental image into anybody's head that like we don't want, that's good. So like, uh, yeah, I don't know. Is that good? Like, yeah, I don't know. We were in a band <laughs> called The Morons for a while, and we tried to get away from the <laughs> thing, and then we just picked a couple words. The, you know, in fact, I just realized that when Easy Habits played here, the poster for the Easy Habits show was Kyle Seismankowski sitting in a Lazy Boy. <laughs> oh, <there you> go. <laughs> I just realized that. <laughs> Sweet. Oh, that was that, that was, was real Kyle, guy. That was the real guy. It was Kyle yes. Seismankowski, <laughs> who, who you just heard on on Size Matters before this. So. <laughs> 
All right. Well, let's. Uh, why don't we play a couple of tunes here? We've got. Uh, I think Corey gave us like uh, a good thirty minutes of this stuff. So why don't we kick out the jams? This is Easy Habits live from Studio C. You're listening to Radio Free Bridgeport, and of course, it's a John Daly session. <laughs> Lumpin' Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. Lumpin' Week in Review is overseen by Logan Bay, produced and engineered by Jamie Trecker. The Lumpin' theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. Lumpin' Radio Sting by Dan Jugal. Voiceovers by Ed Marzuski, Jamie Trecker, and Shanna Van Volt. For more information on Lumpin' Radio, visit lumpinradio.com. Lumpin' Radio broadcasts on 105.5 FM in the Chicago area and worldwide via lumpinradio.com. Yeah.